It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well done for uncovering Whitehall Sources, your new insider podcast on politics. Brought to you in association with The Resident. Hotels with excellent rooms in exceptional locations and where thoughtful teams deliver heartfelt hospitality. A bit like number 10, though evening drinks are from Justerini and Brooks with The Resident, not wheeled in in a suitcase. Thanks to The Resident, your favourite podcast starts now. of Tory government, five Prime Ministers, seven Chancellors. Why do they always clobber working people? You can trust him, you can trust him to deliver for his party, you can trust me to deliver for the country. Welcome to Whitehall Sources. We're recording it on the morning of Thursday, the 24th of November. Uh, thanks for finding us. Of course, keep in touch. Email us, hello at whitehallsources.com. Follow the podcast, subscribe to the podcast. You'll never miss an episode again. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter and on TikTok and on Instagram. Just search for Whitehall Sources. First of all, look who's back. It's Oscar Reddrop. I hope you've brought a note from your parents to explain your absence from last week. Yeah, I was actually a bit of a PE skiver back in the day. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, if you want to put me under the microscope, Callum, I've got excuses coming out of my... I always used to sidestep cross-country, the cross-country running. I would always find it. Yeah, no, but very good to be back. Good, welcome. um, It was in very safe hands, of course. Well... Actually, I I think we said off-air, I thought last week's episode was fascinating. Yeah, it was good. If you're not listening to that, just scroll up in your feed. Uh, and you can hear, we had a guest fest last week, Kirsty and I. Gosh, it was like, I don't even know, it was like juggling, juggling so many former advisors with insights on the budget and whatnot. It was quite good fun, actually, Kirsty. It was excellent, and I just had to sit back and listen to the brilliance of others. It was uh, it was very nice. <laughs> it was I like a little, very much. a little midterm can, holiday. Can I just point out, I was uh, an also a terrible PE scover, and on, I think the third time I left my PE kit at home, my PE teacher, who was... 
a bit unhinged and left under a cloud eventually, told me that uh, it was people like me that went on to start Third World Wars, which I thought was a little over the top for leaving my PE kit at home. But, you know. Well, it's a very odd thing to say I to know. a child. And so far, you've proved to be wrong. You can see why it's stuck. Yes, no, I haven't started a third world war <laughs> Which yet. Which is the main so, yeah. thing. Yeah, well done. Uh, right, I want to start by revisiting one of my favourite subjects, which is, of course, uh, the media round by the government. Now, over the last couple of weeks, a couple of notable things on this. We actually spoke about this on Times Radio Breakfast just the other weekend, because there were rumours at that point that Rishi Sunak was planning on canning the government media round, which is, of course, where a government minister... Uh, appears on TV and radio in the morning between sort of seven and nine, roughly, popping up on the morning TV programmes, the morning radio programmes to answer questions about basically anything. Basically, the idea here is that Rishi Sunak wants to wants to put it in the bin. And actually, there'll be less uh, frequent appearances from government ministers. Indeed, that he might really restrict the time window that, that, that guests will appear to eight minutes, could be three times a week. This is the Prime Minister, of course, who promised to bring in a new era of accountability. And here he is withdrawing ministers from daily broadcast interviews and then limiting the length of the remaining interviews as well to eight minutes is the suggestion. I do think there's a real problem here, actually, as much as I detest the pantomime that is the media round. To, to remove you love it. it. <laughs> to remove it altogether and to limit what, you, what they're there to talk about and for how long. I think it's actually just a bit, it's just a bit unnecessary, unfair, but I don't know if it's all talk, and I kind of wanted your your takes on this, because is it just a bit of bluster and actually they'll have to cave at some point? I just, I'm trying to map out if this is reality now. Well, I mean, look, it's so, that was probably the biggest part of my job uh, when I was at number 10. It's obviously not fun for government ministers to get up ridiculously early in the morning perhaps even sometimes stay in a hotel, maybe if it's particularly if it's, you know, the morning shows on a Sunday away from your family, answer questions, difficult questions outside of your brief. It's not a fun experience. Some ministers like it a lot more than others. I think it's probably, you know, quite evident who those are. But, 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 we, we were very, very accessible. We tried to do pretty much every single show no, you were only accessible show. because you were sending ministers out with bizarre lines that then would crumble and burn by the next morning, though, Oscar, weren't you? Well, this is the thing. So this, no, but uh, that, I, very funny, Callum. Thank Still you. A bit... <laughs> I'm, I've got a nervous tick. I'm win if people who can't see. I'm kind of having. It's all very Herbert Lom over there right now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but but no. But this is but but you have hit the nail on the head in a way. But it kind of doesn't matter in the sense that you kind of have a duty a bit to talk to the public about issues, particularly at the moment, that are completely dominating their lives, like a war on our continent and, you know, a cost of living crisis and the lowering of living standards and inflation. And, like, so you just, you kind of just have to do it. And we, there was, there was a, about a week that we put Kay Burley on the bench. <laughs> Um, because she gave, and I stand by it now, you know, a hugely unfair interview and kind of Sky News edited and, and put up all these clips on social media out of context of a government minister's interview. So there was very unique... I'm sure they would say all that they were doing was clipping up what the government minister said and posting it online. No, but it, it was framed, it was framed very, very naughtily. But anyway... We don't need to go over that. But so there are instances where you can go, you know what, as the government, yeah, 
we're not happy with this specific show and how they are treating our government ministers. And on very rare occasions, I think it's okay to be like, you know what, there are plenty of shows out there. We're going to give them a bit longer and you can sit out for a couple of days. But by and large, you just need to do it. You need, you need to do it. You know, it's, it's just, it's almost like a, it's a public service in a way. If, if you want to be in government, you need to do it. And a lot of people come in and they talk very tough and they're like, yeah, we're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. But the re- reality bites and how that manifests inevitably is, you know, stations going, well, okay, we'll just find more time for, you know, labour. And Labour are so, so keen to show they're ready for government now. You know, they're, they're fighting to get into TV studios. Or, within your own party, we'll find voices that, that are more than willing to criticise the government. So I, I don't know how sustainable it is. I kind of respect, in, in theory, the idea that, hang on a minute, when we've got something to announce and we can have a proper interview, read that announcement then we will we'll be in front of a TV camera. Apart from that, like, why do we want to get involved in just kind of the, the rumour mill and the, the back and forth of politics? I get that, but in practice, it just, it just doesn't work. First of all, the Boris Johnson government liked quite a lot to get all John Wayne on the lobby and put people, you know, put people on the naughty step, as it were. I'm not sure it ever really worked. I remember, obviously, Lee Kane tried to, to, to kick out some journalists from what he thought were unfriendly and unhelpful publications during a selective briefing, and it led to a kind of mass walkout of the entire lobby. The, the lobby's strength, if you like, is, you know, it's it's a kind of all-for-one when needs be. I mean, obviously, not when exclusive stories are to be had, but, but otherwise they kind of move as a unit and their strength is in a unit. So that kind of relationship where they tried to, you know, to tune people out, keep people in the cold, I, I, I agree didn't work and wasn't really self-sustaining. Um, look, I've always been a kind of less is more kind of gal. What happens in number 10, so that people understand, is there's something called the media grid. And at the top of the media grid is the sort of government story of the day. Now, uh, you'll not be shocked to learn that not every government story of the day, every new policy or every announcement is as strong as the one before or the <laughs> one afterwards, if you like. And so actually you end up in a situation where you get into this kind of media by numbers, tick, 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 where you've got the, the top of the grid story of the day, which means that X minister from X department has to go out and do a media round. Actually, most of the time the story isn't that strong, that minister is then facing, you know, 99 questions about why the government is so hopeless, incompetent, ex, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then one kind of token question at the end about their thin gruel policy that they're actually there to announce. So, look, for me, it makes a lot of sense to say, look, if we haven't got anything big and meaningful to say, then we're not going to come out and, you know, just be a whipping boy for, for, a, for a media determined to hold us to account. Uh, fine, I get all that. Where I do agree with you, Oscar, is whether it is sustainable or not. Because if nature abhors a vacuum, then journalism abhors it even more. And 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 actually, what will probably happen is that you'll have a lot of the media saying, "Well, okay, if we can't talk to the health secretary or the transport secretary, we'll talk to the shadow health secretary or the shadow transport secretary." Exactly. You'll end up giving a lot of free time to the Labour Party, the Labour front bench, the opposition that wants to now increasingly style itself as the government in waiting. And actually, I guess that this will probably end up, uh, as you say, Oscar, rowing back and you'll end up with, with media. Uh, and, and, and also, so I, I know that so the new broadcast 
uh, special advisors who've gone in are infinitely <laughs> more experienced than I am and have actually worked in, you know, that have worked for, um, IT, you know, ITV. And, and, and so, so they completely get it. And actually, like, it's quite interesting, you know, I was receiving calls from them not so long ago with them kind of being quite, you know, rightly aggressive and in their, uh, their desire to have government ministers on their platform. And so I completely respect the decision they are making. All I would say is that these are not normal times. There is a there is, you know, the idea that you only go on when there's an announcement. I think you know, that every is every single day. Editorially, if you if as a as an outlet, if you and I don't, I think what Kirsty says is right. When there's an announcement, it tends to just get tacked on the end of an interview because guests don't dictate the terms by which they're interviewed. Now, clearly, there are exceptions to that. If somebody's in a vulnerable position and you can't identify them and there's certain things you can and can't talk about for people's safety or whatever. But when it's a politician saying, I will only come on if we're talking about this specific thing, I think that is absolutely disgusting. Or, but hold on, Carol, except, and as you say, there are exceptions to that, if you are a government with a major and significant announcement to make, then... That is the thing that will dominate the interview. And that is the point I think that they're trying to make. Yeah. Rather than come on and allow ourselves to be a whipping boy for the media because we're, you know, trying to promote this thin gruel piece of rebaked yeah. policy announcement and dress it up as a piece of news, why not step back and when we have something major, significant and important to say, then we will come on and then you can absolutely hold us to account. I think if I was a minister, I'd also pull you up on and Callum about the point about saying how else are MPs and parliamentarians to be held to account? Well, there's a thing called a Majesty's Opposition and Parliament. You know, there are more than one way, you know, to hold a government to account. That is, you know, that is not the sole responsibility of the media. So yeah. I can entirely see the rationale behind it. I'm not entirely sure that because it just gives a like a free run to the Labour Party, whether it will hold, but I, you know, I get the rationale. Really interesting. Your thoughts on this, welcome. Would you miss the government minister, hearing from a government minister every day, should this transpire to be the case? Email hello at whitehallsources.com. What do you value? What do you gain from hearing from them? Would you rather hear from other people? How do you think this should play out? Email us hello at whitehallsources.com. Now, just before we get into the kind of meat of the episode for today, I want just a quick thought from you on sport and politics. The World Cup is underway in Qatar. Uh, it has been plagued by controversy, uh, by discussions around what footballers should do, what politicians should do in light of Qatar's awful um, record on human rights, on the rights of migrant workers, or indeed lack of rights for migrant workers, on LGBT issues, on women's rights. How, do politi how does politics and sport, how should they engage with each other at times like this, Oscar? Generally speaking... I think it's helpful when the two are kept apart. I think, however, there are exceptions, and I think the, the World Cup being held in Qatar is an exception. I think it is completely... It's so... I mean, as someone who genuinely, in terms of, like, what I would deem my simple pleasures in life, watching England play football at an international tournament like the World Cup with my friends at a pub is very, very, very high on that list. I'm completely obsessed with football. I love how it brings your friends and the country together and yada, 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 yada. So the fact that it's being held in Qatar is genuinely tragic to me. And I know this is quite selfish as a straight white male who's not necessarily... But it's horrific and it is so wrong. 
And I think that if footballers, and it's an unfair expectation that's placed on them, because you forget this decision was taken, you know, what was it, like 12 years ago, 10 years ago? Half the footballers playing were probably like 14 years old when this decision was taken. And then all of a sudden they're expected to kind of have on their shoulders or, you know, in terms of the, the armband, uh, almost quite literally on their arm, the responsibility of making a political statement. I think Qatar are regretting holding this tournament. I think they're a very quiet country that made a lot, you know, made, made serious money and let countries with, you know, uh, human rights issues like Saudi Arabia take the flak, if you like. And I think they're regretting it because now all of a sudden they've just stuck their arm in the air and be like, oh, we have really shocking human rights records too. Uh, so I don't think they want the World Cup there. It is genuinely shocking. I hate virtue signalling, by the way. So I find myself in a really odd place here. But this isn't virtue signalling because there's a risk involved. And I hope the players understand that, yes, I might get a yellow card. Yes, it might affect my sporting achievements at this World Cup. But that's the point of a protest, yeah, that risk. It has to cost something. And I hope they step up to it. Yeah, and I think there's an interesting consideration with politicians and uh, engaging with this particular uh, chapter um, as well, because famously there was a lot of talk about, well, actually awarding the World Cup to Russia, although, which was done at the same time as this, incidentally, years ago, was a great opportunity to engage with Russia and to change things in Russia. Uh, and here we are in, in a wartime situation. Kirsty, what about you on politics and, and sport? I think politics absolutely has a place in sport. I think if you look at the England team, the kind of high watermark, if you like, for me in terms of this was exemplified by Gareth Southgate's amazing letter before the Euros about why the team would be taking the knee because it represented a young, diverse multicultural uh, Britain that was proud to stand together in its fight against racism. If that was the high water mark, then I think going to Qatar, suggesting that you're going to, you know, wear an armband in support of LGBT rights uh, and then backing down because you've been threatened with a yellow card. I don't think it, you know, it, it does anybody any favours here. I don't think it does uh, the England captain any favours or Southgate's obliged to defend that. And shame on FIFA for doing that in the first place. So yeah, I think fun. this whole tournament is compromised by being in Qatar in the first place. So in essence, if you like, a row about an armband compared to whether anybody should be having a, 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 a football tournament of this magnitude uh, and on this scale in a country with this many issues behind it, I think is an entirely kind of separate point, which massively overshadows for me an armband. Good to get your thoughts on all of that. Thank you. Uh, still to come on Whitehall Sources then, we're going to dive into the Checkers plan. It's back four years later. What does it mean? How does it work? And what should the response of the Conservative Party and the Prime Minister and others be as well? We'll do that for you. Plus, we're going to look at the never-ending Indie Ref 2 is back in the news this week. Scottish independence and all it means we'll be hearing from someone who spent three years running the union unit in number 10. That's all to come. Let us turn to something we want to consider this week once again, which is the Chequers Plan, um, officially known as the future relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union. Uh, it was a government white paper, all about Brexit, of course. It was published in 2018 by the Prime Minister at the time, Theresa May. Kirsty Buchanan, why are we discussing this again four years later? Uh, because uh, the Sunday Times wrote a front page article uh, 
which featured some musings, shall we say, from a senior government source, that in time, the United Kingdom might have to rethink its relationship with the European Union, uh, particularly in its uh, passage towards greater growth, and it might have to consider something along the lines of a Swiss-style deal, which is, in essence, uh, frictionless trade uh, without free movement, which is, uh, as great lovers of Chequers will remember, the fundamental point of the Chequers deal was this kind of ability to have as near as, as damn it, frictionless trade without free movement. Of course, the only way you could do that, of course, was by encompassing and not annexing, as we have with Boris Johnson still, Northern Ireland, and therefore we had the backstop, and the rest, as you know, is very painful history. Um, now, what happened after this article came out was that the uh, hardcore Brexit purists in the Conservative Party uh, reached for their collective smelling thoughts. There was absolute outcry, uh, and Number 10 went straight out and denied that they had any plans for a... A Swiss-style deal with the EU. Now, an interesting thing for everyone listening to consider, and this is classic kind of Westminster, two things can be exactly true at exactly the same time, even if they are contradictory. So Downing Street's denial is about something that the Sunday Times article didn't actually say. The Sunday Times article is a very well-sourced uh, piece of of you know, thinking, if you like, from a senior government person, let's put it that way, about the direction of travel of a Brexit deal. The source was making the point that you simply can't have a deal in aspic for all eternity as it is currently constituted. And there will, over time, inevitably be a series of bilateral deals, closer cooperation deals, uh, which might move towards uh, frictionless trade in certain key areas. So it's a perfectly rational point. Number 10's denial was about saying we have no plans for an EU, uh, you know, Swiss-style deal with the UK. Well, that's not what the Sunday Times article was saying. So you've got two completely contradictory things, both of which are true. Uh, a couple of other points to mention. There is no way in uh, God's green earth that not only would Downing Street want a Swiss-style deal, nor would the European Union... I think anybody that uh, my my ex-husband is from Switzerland, so I, I know a fair amount about the complexities of, of a Swiss-style deal. It is an absolute tottering Jenga of a, of a kind of relationship. It's really, really complicated and difficult. Uh, I don't think it, 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 it serves Switzerland particularly well. It's not very popular in Switzerland. It's even less popular in Brussels, and I cannot imagine anybody would, would want that. Nevertheless, there is a point here, and a fundamental underlying point, that over time we are going to have to move. Which brings us back to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, the, the problem that we've got the Northern Ireland Protocol is not only at the moment is it not functioning and that we've got too many checks uh, on goods moving from Britain to Northern Ireland, which is causing problems for the people and the businesses in Northern Ireland, and that needs to be resolved. It's also holding up a lot of other trade, potential trade relationships and bilateral agreements with the EU. So that needs to be resolved. That will unlock some more growth. So actually, what we're beginning to see is the start of a conversation that starts now, but will continue right through 2024. I don't think it's a defining moment of, of the next election, but potentially at the election after that, 
we're going to have to think about you know, how we move forward, how we pursue growth. The European Union is still our biggest trading partner. We have a chronic growth problem in this country. We're going to have to start to have a grown-up conversation about whether we want a warmer, uh, different style of relationship with the EU and what that might look like. Oscar, do you want to add, I suppose, the kind of the Boris chapter, if I can put it like that, because here we are several years on from the Chequers plan and we're gone full circle, basically. Boris is actually, he he did an interview a couple of days ago or maybe yesterday where he said that linking poor growth in the UK as directly as a result of Brexit is completely ludicrous. And, you know, I'm not an economist uh, so I wouldn't want to delve too far into that. But the fact that it's even on the desk of Number 10, the fact that Jeremy Hunt coming back into government, there is a perception, and this is completely what Boris Johnson is the antidote to, um, there is a perception that we are st- that within the Tory party, there is a creeping kind of Remainer presence, or at least a, a presence of slightly redefining, or even just kind of in a pointy-headed intellectual way, and maybe quite rightly, this is what's so divisive about them. Brexit is an issue because what it means politically and what it means on the ground often just do not uh, intersect whatsoever. There's a creeping Remainer kind of presence from the Tory party. I have to say, for their self-preservation as a party, both in terms of that 2019 electorate, you know, in inverted commas, the Boris Johnson electorate, and actually just in terms of party management, the quickest way that they could set themselves on fire and blow themselves up I do think is entertaining conversations around what would be perceived as, a, you know, a kind of a, a, a dilution of what Brexit purists want in that party. A couple of things. One, it was Boris Johnson himself in one of his many, many musings about our relationship with the EU before he finally decided to be a Brexiteer. He himself talked <laughs> about the concept of Britsland and having a sort of outer tier relationship with the EU. So uh, I don't think he's, uh, you know, uh, intellectually against it in any event. And secondly, the fundamental point about Brexit, even for the Brexiteers, even for the hardcore Brexiteers, was sovereignty. Now, what Switzerland has and has retained is sovereignty. What it also has, albeit in a very complicated way that I don't think anybody uh, with any sense would would wish to replicate, but what it has is a is a series of of trade deals that allows for frictionless trade so there is a there is a perfect world where we can retain the sovereignty, retain our control of our money laws yeah. and borders, and start to have a conversation about how you move towards a series of closer cooperation you know, uh, bilateral trade deals, better working around security and research and science without it in any way, you know, undercutting uh, or eroding what people voted for in the referendum, which was to take back control of our money, laws and borders. It was to retain our own sovereignty. There are already some significant benefits to being outside the EU, I think, obviously, the vaccine rollout, the rapid vaccine yeah. rollout was one of them. I think that our relationship, and, and actually full credit to Boris Johnson on this, our strong, immediate, swift and yeah. sure support for Ukraine, whilst parts of the European Union 
dithered and delayed and held back, that's an obvious benefit of being in control of our own destiny and not having to navigate compromise with some very uncomfortable competing interests with some of our European partners. That's all fine and good. But at some point, we're going to have to have a relationship that moves away from Brexit and Remain to where mm. do we go forward? And actually, that is about growth. That is about, it remains our our number one trading partner, our, our, our biggest trading partner. It is our neighbour. It is our friend and ally. We have close cooperation on security. This is right and proper that we build in our trading relationship. I, 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 I agree with everything you said, Kirsty. I just think that the, the, the fact that we are inevitably now moving into a place where we are discussing the the, the, the kind of bespoke, maybe more mature, now it's been, you know, several years, uh, we need growth more than ever, kind of actually like under a magnifying glass, examining our future relationship with um, the EU, that is, a, that is a terrifying process for the Conservative Party, though, because it is still so, so loaded, that conversation. You watch interviews now, and, I mean, I, mean, I can't... I, I, this hasn't happened in years. You know, ministers, when they're doing their morning uh, interview rounds, they're being asked, they're saying, can you tell name me one benefit that Brexit has brought this? You know, not, not the vaccine, you know, like, yeah, we, we'll, we'll give you that. Aside from the vaccine, name me one benefit that Brexit has brought brought this country. And that's a really terrifying prospect for government ministers now. And here is the fascinating point about the power of the narrative, right, and how politics abhors a vacuum. Now, I, again, in an outbreak of tedious consensus, I completely <laughs> agree with you that, you know, uh, the Prime Minister, amongst his many, many, you know, bulging, cripplingly awful intray has neither the strength nor, frankly, the ability to have a fight about banging on about Europe with, with his backbenchers right now. He wouldn't want it. He doesn't want it. They need to kind of just keep a lid on this and, as best as they can, muddle through to 2024. Yeah. But there is a separate, you know, there is a separate narrative growing and you can do two things with that now. You can either find yourself as a government or as a Conservative Party permanently on the back foot and this conversation won't go away more and more and more ministers and the conservative party are going to have to answer what is the benefit of brexit and you know you can only go so far on the vaccine and our support for uh, Zelensky you know that's that's going to take you so far and then you're going to have to start to say what is the benefit of it for British businesses for British jobs for British people. And if you can't start to fill in that narrative, then you're going to be in problems with a country that's got a chronic productivity and growth problem. So you can you can either end up permanently on the back foot on that, or you can create an, your own positive narrative going forward, where you very gently start to make the conversation that we started to see in the Sunday Times about saying, look, you know, a Brexit deal is an evolving relationship. We didn't create a deal and it sticks there in aspect for all time. Circumstances change, relationships change. They are our close friends and allies. They are our main trading partner. We want to be able to build, you know, new trading deals with them, you know, new relationships with them around security, around research, around science. And bit by bit by bit, you move that positive story forward of an ever closer trading relationship whilst retaining your British sovereignty. But you've got to start gently making that argument, otherwise they're just going to end up permanently on the what did Brexit ever do for us kind of back foot. In this context, when we're talking about 
a Switzerland deal, the Checkers plan, from a few which existed a few years ago, and it's back four years on. You worked with Theresa May. You worked with her around some of the really defining Brexit moments that I suppose ultimately led to her not being prime minister anymore. How does it how does it feel to you that four years ago Theresa May had this written down and and it's gone away and come back again? The relationship you have with the EU was always going to be a sliding scale, a spectrum, if you like. And on the one hand, you have a very hard, clean Brexit, which comes with friction built into your trade. And at the other, uh, you have uh, frictionless trade, but you have this complexity of having uh, everybody caught, if you like, by, by the needs, the peculiarities of that border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So there was a choice to be made there. And in essence, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May made the choice that she made in part because of peace and security in Northern Ireland, but also in part to secure as frictionless as of trade as possible. Right, That was the choice that she made. Now, that wasn't enough for the Brexit purists, but that also comes with trade-offs and concessions. So it comes in, in difficulties for Northern Ireland, for businesses and people within Northern Ireland, which we are still, by the way, to resolve... One of the great ironies of we got Brexit done is is we haven't. You know, 1.8 million people in Northern Ireland will say, like, no, you haven't got it done. We still have to resolve the Northern Ireland Protocol. So so that was the choice that, that he made, but it also puts friction into the equation. So actually, you've got increasingly British businesses saying, what is this doing for me? I've got all regulations. You know, it's more difficult to trade. This is our number one partner. Everything is really complicated. Nothing really works. I've got a labour shortage. I've got skills shortages. Some of the point about this is about creating our own immigration system, a points-based system, and where you can meet need skills shortages. Well, that doesn't seem to be functioning particularly well at the moment either. So how does it feel on a personal level? Um, you know, look, you... you you make the choice that you that you make based on, on where you think the most important thing is. The Prime Minister, Theresa May, thought it was most important to hold the union together, right? But it split the party apart and cost her her premiership. Boris Johnson appeased what was then the sort of, you know, the, the overweening power of the Brexiteers within the party, but it risks splitting the union apart. And it's not, frankly, that great for business. Everything is a trade-off in life. Brexit is no different. I think... Uh, I understand, I completely understand why the Chequers deal was not sellable to the Conservative Party. I'm not suggesting that, that that didn't have its own sort of, you know, unassailable problems, if you like. But it comes back to the point about everything in politics is about compromise and trade-offs. We've got to start thinking about how you grow the Boris deal upwards and outwards, because... Brexit is, you know, for life, if you like, not just for Christmas. <laughs> you know, it's an evolving yeah. relationship and it needs to evolve. This this deal that we have needs to grow. You know, we've got new industries emerging, clean industries, AI. You know, what is our relationship with EU going to be in in, in emerging markets that, that, that haven't, you know, that haven't even really taken, taken seed yet? The, the conversation you know? is also evolving and the conversation... Um, well, oh, but that's the point, Oscar. Right now, within the Conservative Party, it's not. It's exactly to your point about, 
you know, Remain is saying X, Y, and Z. You know, if the Conservative Party don't move away from a conversation about Brexit and Remain and start to find a new language for a, you know, for an evolved relationship, then actually they're going to, you know, it's it's just another reason why they're going to turn well, off voting. Yeah, and it may very well happen without them, that conversation evolving. And part of that, the commentariat quite dismissive of this. Nigel Farage, OK, and I, I, I bumped into him um, in the GP uh, News green room. Uh, Nigel Farage is ready to go. He is convinced that there are millions and millions of people in this country that come the next general election will side with him and take him away. And I know people kind of scoff at it. I wish they would know, take him away. And, and, and you know, and, and, and Farage is, you know, he has no faith in first past the post. You know, he, 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 you know he's like, my millions of votes, what does that actually mean for me? But in terms of, like, the negotiating hand come the next general election, it's hugely important. You forget... You forget what happened in 2019, where he basically kind of stood aside for for the Conservative Party, and I, I I just think that as the conversation on Brexit becomes more nuanced, more kind of intellectualized, as it probably should be, you know, Farage will will absolutely pick the exact moment to bulldoze straight through it, and that again, just for the Conservative Party. Is, is, is really, really a, a huge hurdle, I think, uh, in, in the year or, you know, months ahead. Which is exactly why you need the government, the Conservative Party needs... The Labour Party, for that matter, needs a new narrative. That, that, yeah. So that the public can understand that nobody, when they're talking about a new relationship with EU, is in any way suggesting you know, rolling back on Brexit or having another referendum or turning back the clock. This is about a sovereign nation, which will remain a sovereign nation in control of its own money, laws and borders, creating as a sovereign nation a new evolving, you know, relationship with its friends and allies and partners, its trading partners, that will benefit Britain. And you've got to start moving into that space because if you don't, that stale old populist argument and the likes of Farage will pop up again and create the idea that, you know, there's guys with white hats over here and like villains over here. This isn't about this. It's about time that we, you know, we are a sovereign nation now. We are in control of our own destiny. Let's let's be mature about that and have a mature conversation about what we then do with that sovereignty moving forward and how we have a new relationship with EU without it just getting stuck in this tired old, uh, you know, tired old conversation and, you know, battle lines of the past. Now, I know you're already listening to this podcast, but that is why you're listening, because you hear conversation based on working inside Number 10, working with Prime Minister's understanding how it works and offering analysis on exactly what that means today. Here are two former special advisors giving advice. You're welcome, Prime Minister. Coming up in the next couple of minutes on Whitehall Sources, we're turning our attention to Scottish independence. It's back in the news agenda. What's it like working in number 10 when you're up against Nicola Sturgeon? We'll find out right after this. We are so glad to be here and we are so grateful for our wonderful sponsor. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with Resident Hotels. 
Their fantastic team of resident insiders are waiting for you at their ideal city centre locations in London and Liverpool. The locations are hand-picked. Insiders are specifically trained to give you all the info you could possibly need for your stay, including secret tips and tricks of the local neighbourhood. They sound a bit like sources, you might say. It's magic moments galore during your stay. And by the way, TripAdvisor backs us up on this. The resident hotel Liverpool is number one. Covent Garden in London is number one. Kensington, Soho and Victoria in London are all in the top 30. Here's what Nicholas says in his review. We found our room very spacious. The Nespresso machine and mini fridge was a lifesaver as I really need my morning coffee with real milk to get going. The staff were very friendly and helpful. Sold. Click residenthotels.com to book your stay at one of the resident hotels, making Whitehall sources possible. This week on the podcast, we want to take you behind a specific door in number 10 Downing Street, the Union Unit, because of course, Scottish independence has been in the headlines once again. The issue at hand in the Supreme Court this week was actually pretty focused. It wasn't whether Scotland should be independent or even whether there should be a referendum, but specifically whether the Scottish Parliament can hold a poll without the consent of Westminster. The answer perhaps wasn't necessarily much of a surprise, but does leave lots of questions hanging in the balance, both for the Prime Minister and for the First Minister of Scotland. First of all, then, let's have a listen to Ian Blackford, who's the SNP's Westminster leader. It is right that we respect the decision of the court. But the Prime Minister can't claim to respect the rule of law and then deny democracy in the very same breath. If democracy is to matter, if elections matter, then mandates matter. Since 2014, the Scottish National Party has won eight elections in a row. Last year, we won a landslide. The Scottish Parliament now has the biggest majority for an independence referendum in the history of devolution. The Prime Minister doesn't even have a personal mandate to sit in 10 Downing Street. What right? Does a man with no mandate have to deny Scottish democracy? But, but, Mr Speaker, when when it comes to Scottish democracy, I'm pleased that the Scottish Government has one of the most powerful devolved assemblies anywhere in the world. And and I'm pleased, and, and and I was pleased, very shortly after becoming Prime Minister, to be the first Prime Minister in over a decade to attend the Council, to sit down with the First Minister, to explore ways in which we can work together with the Scottish Government to deliver for the people of Scotland. Whether that's delivering our growth deals, delivering free ports, or ensuring that the £1.5 billion of extra Barnet money can go towards supporting public services, that's what we're committed to doing in Scotland. Let's try to get a grip on how this all works. Uh, joining Whitehall sources is Luke Graham, a former MP indeed, who also ran the union unit in number 10 Downing Street. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Great to have you here. First of all, explain the concept of the union unit. What was your purpose? Why did you exist? Sure. I was um, MP for Oakland and South Perthshire 2017 to 2019. And then I was lucky enough to be uh, head of the union unit from uh, 2020 to 2021. Um, and the, the unit really was it was a commitment that Boris Johnson made during his leadership campaign uh, to try and put some extra focus uh, on union issues right at the heart of government. 
to make sure policy making was really reflecting the needs of all four parts of the UK um, and not just yeah, becoming too London focused. Did it work? I think to a to a, a greater or lesser extent, yes, it did. Uh, I mean, if you look at now the number of ministerial appearances that are taking place in in Scotland, in Wales, they're significantly up on where we where we were a few years back. Uh, if you look at policy, you're now getting policy that's a lot more kind of UK based. And whether that was an example recently last week about the NHS prescribing kind of heating allowances that was you know tested up in uh, England, Wales, and and Scotland. Um, and uh, and then also some of the biggest changes that we brought, which was the UK Internal Market Act, um, which for the first time in Section 6 allowed, uh, clarified the powers of Westminster to invest directly in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland uh, and fund local authorities, people and businesses in those different parts of the UK, which before you couldn't do. And you were in a ridiculous position being a Scottish MP where uh, Westminster couldn't give you and actually fund projects in your constituency or have policy that could be um, uh, directly applicable outside of a very constrained reserve space. That's the PR bit. So that's the real life bit. I wonder what it was like in there uh, in terms of, I, I understand, for example, I think you were the only Scottish person in the union unit, were you not? The, the union, actually, we had uh, a good mix. So we had uh, civil servants, uh, obviously, as well. And some civil servants were from different parts of the UK, Northern Ireland. Another special advisor was from, from Wales. So we were, we were a good mix. And, of course, my mum's English as well. So we had a good, you know, good mix uh, of all different parts of the UK uh, represented. But um, I think, you know, inside, you know, you've got to remember also, we were operating in the backdrop of COVID, the Brexit uh, negotiations, too it's quite a tempestuous time to be in the kind of heart of government because you're going through multiple challenges at the national scale, at the devolved scale, at the local, as well as trying to, to obviously fix the problem you've been brought in to do in the first place. Yeah, that is interesting. I suppose also with, with the backdrop of COVID comes the mantra, the sort of perception that Nicola Sturgeon was handling it really well. And actually it drove a, a really interesting kind of divide between Westminster and Holyrood, because she was largely seen during that time, if we all think back, to being a really effective leader, perhaps in the, up against poor leadership elsewhere. Were you, was that something you were wrestling with in the union unit? Yeah, I think, I mean, it just shows the importance of, I guess, communication and communication style in, in politics. Nicola Sturgeon, you know, to her credit, was presenting very clearly. It's uh, unequal measures, right, when, you, when you're comparing what Westminster was having to do versus the devolved administration. Because actually all of the testing, much of the vaccine programme, all of those things were delivered by Westminster in, in a lot of time cooperation with local authorities and devolved. But you know, the army was doing a lot. A lot of it was coming from Westminster. And then really it was putting the devolved administration in the position of, yes, of course, some of the direct health service support they had to focus on, but then also some of the devolved rules. When you looked at the polling back at the time, people were saying we want there to be a UK level rules and not all this difference. But we also want different parts of the UK to be able to do different things if needed. You were getting kind of contradictory messages. And of course, the messengers are obviously equally as important. Kirsty, come in on this, because I wonder if there's a kind of tangible change or tangible changes in approach to the union. For example, what is the, the significance of a union unit? Do you think that is actually something that a Westminster Conservative government can shout about and say, look, we're, we're taking this seriously? I think to some certain extent uh, it's it's imperative and it's vital. How loud you shout about it, I think, depends a little bit on your Prime Minister. 
Boris Johnson had many qualities, but being popular in Scotland certainly wasn't one of them. Whereas, obviously, I think there's going to be a, you know, a thawing and a more constructive relationship, perhaps, with, with Rishi Sunak, who will at least be able to show his face north, north of the border, which I'm not entirely sure Boris could have done. <laughs> um, I mean, look, you know, we are a union. Uh, it is vitally important that we, you know, we keep our, our union relationship heart and centre and right at the heart of government. It's something we wrestled with um, in the time of uh, Theresa May's government was how to tell a positive story about the benefits of union membership. I think this has become more difficult post-Brexit because obviously Scotland didn't vote for it. So, uh, you know, you can understand why, you know, there's these sort of competing tensions, but uh, I think there needs to be an emotive case made for union membership and and the ongoing union relationship. There's no point saying to people, oh, well, you know, you you get this benefit from Westminster or we're... You know, it needs to be, like most politics, it needs to be an emotive resonance response of we are stronger together or something along those lines. And the reality is, you know, like many things like Brexit too, you know, the, the, the population in Scotland remains pretty evenly divided on on independence and uh, and unionship. And whether, you know, the result of the Supreme Court ruling yesterday, I don't think Overly will change that. And we shall see whether her gambit of making the next election, you know, a de facto referendum on independence was a smart move or she just shot herself in the foot. Oscar, what about the, the, the sort of narrative, I guess, that, that sometimes plays out that the number 10 doesn't care? And as Kirsty points to, that Boris Johnson particularly was kind of viewed quite disparagingly in Scotland. Generally speaking, of course, there are exceptions to the rule. But did that sort of fuel the attitude of number 10 in terms of, oh, you know, I can just imagine a day where it's like, oh, I don't care. I don't care what's happening in Scotland. Did that ever happen? Did you ever kind of feel that, that get that sense? I think when there are huge kind of cut across issues like, you know, a cost of living crisis or a global pandemic or even with stuff like the Ukrainian refugee scheme. When there's like these these huge overarching issues, that is definitely not the case. And actually, you know, from my position in terms of media handling, you know, when something like the cost of living crisis, which inevitably was on the front pages, when you're doing those kind of broadcast rounds, for example, and, you know, and you'll know this, Callum, you know, better than most, and there's countless outlets actually finding room to do Scottish channels was actually at times quite important to us because you can so easily, as you said, and so wrongly, to be frank, just get really, I mean, you know, Westminster bubble, the kind of, you know, England, Wales, and it's almost like this, you, you know there's going to be difficult interviews up there in Scotland, for example, and you, you can easily just shy away from that. But there are huge issues, and there's almost like the public service that a government has to provide, particularly when it came to my job on comms, with something like the cost of living, where you actually went, no, no, we, we actually have to find time. Yeah. We have to find time here. This has to be important. I think Rishi is, is someone who is capable of, having that seriousness of thought and building those relationships moving forward, actually. Luke, what, what's your perception of, I suppose, the seriousness? Because, I, again, I can imagine just sort of in the union unit, it must be difficult not to annoy people. And I, I, I mean that genuinely because, <laughs> you know, you're in there as a Scottish person who is, you know, clearly passionate about the union, but from a Scottish perspective. And I just wonder if sometimes that, that actually just, you know, highlights the tensions that are at play. 
Yeah, and I, look, speaking frankly, I, I probably had quite a few robust conversations with my communication colleagues who were doing things like dropping uh, GMS things from the... Good, so good Morning France. Scotland on, on Radio yeah, Sco- morning, BBC Radio sorry, Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. And, and plenty of others available, of course. But uh, but the, you know, these were these were some of the arguments that I would have, and I would put it very robustly. So yeah, there was... And I actually, one of the briefs I got going in was, you, you are going to annoy some people, and good, uh, because it needs done. There's always different ways you can approach problems, which is good, but there, you know, there were... Yeah, quite a few robust conversations about that, and the, you know, it, it has got considerably better. But certainly in the in the early days, there was a lot of frustration about you know, why it wasn't getting the right attention. And as Oscar rightly says, people, and even you know, not even the, the behind the door number ten, but your know, MPs and others wanting to kind of pivot away from a difficult interview in an area they feel uh, uncomfortable because they might get caught out in a kind of gotcha moment about is certain aspect of. Uh, you know, health policy devolved or reserved, or an you know climate devolved or reserved. You know, some of these things are clear, some of these things aren't, and and so again, giving them the part of the job was giving people confidence to be able to go up there and speak as comfortably as they would uh, in you know uh, Perthshire or Clamanshire or, or Edinburgh as they would in in Birmingham, Redcar or or, uh, or Bristol. Yeah, that's an that's a really interesting one because the messaging is so important, the communication is so important. And even on, you know, on the radio when we're covering things, I have to, you know, fly my saltire flag regularly because often we'll be talking about things like health and you have to remind listeners that it is an England and Wales thing and actually the implications of this are yeah. yet to be seen. Even last week when we were doing the budget on the radio, and we kept having to say, you know, we, it remains to be seen what the kind of implications are for Scotland and what the SNP government choose to do in the next few weeks when they do the Scottish budget. And so there is, you have to have that awareness as you're going through this. Yeah. And there is also a trepidation, and hopefully we've overcome it to a certain extent, of not even wanting to do anything in, in Scotland and, and to a lesser extent Wales because of those perceived difficulties. So even communicating the good that we're doing millions of pounds uh, invested in city region deals, which for a long time had no signage outside them. There was no indication that the UK government was doing anything. The European Union, the Scottish government put up massive signs, flags. There's no doubt whatsoever. Come to the duelling of the A9. There's about three flags every mile uh, or signs that will incorporate a saltire or Scottish government description, you know, every few miles. Whereas the UK government was completely absent and giving people again the confidence to say that, that you can you can signpost and you in fact you need to to signpost show people you're doing good things um because otherwise you just become the target of the negative yeah dueling the a9 is a classic by the way as a highlander so the a9 is the road that links inverness to the central belt of scotland and for years and years and years it's been single carriageway and it's dangerous it's really it's quite a Mm. dangerous road actually and so there's been campaigns for years to get dual carriageway put in um, I like that we can talk about these things, Luke, on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> this is nice. This is good. What about? I suppose the the sort of one of the other dimensions to the union unit then is actually engaging with the Scottish government. Um, yeah. You talked about robust conversations before. Did did that feel like a strained or tense relationship? Um, it, it, you know, at times, yes. I mean, we did try, and certainly in the early days of COVID, you know, I worked quite closely with Spads um, in 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 most of the devolved administrations, actually, um, and with uh, different politicians in, in each part of the UK. Because actually, when we were talking about things like making sure different parts of the UK are getting the right level of PPE, um, making sure that we weren't missing out, uh, you know, testing the sharing of data, uh, that was needed. And we tried to do that in a kind of an apolitical way as possible. Or like I say, some, some people were a lot better at that than others. <laughs> yes, you're very diplomatic, I have to say. <laughs> 
Um, as a, just as a final thought, and I, I don't mean to be salacious or to pry, but no. what does it say that you're not in the union unit anymore? And is there still that focus? Is there still a priority in terms of how your time there perhaps ended or, or, or where we're at now with kind of union relations in light of the Supreme Court decision this week? Well, I, I think there's been you know, so much, uh, it's been so stormy uh, you know, in, in number 10 over the past few months uh, that you know, there's, there's been a lot of change. But I think with Rishi at the helm, there's been some positive kind of first steps. You've got some people in there that you know, certainly I've, I've worked with and colleagues have worked with, we have a lot of confidence in, who are already you know, putting out the right messages. I think the, you know, the engagement with the uh, devolved first ministers kind of, you know, in Blackpool was a really positive step. You can see some of the policies that are, are, are coming out as well. As with a lot of the union, and Kirsty mentioned it in Oscar too, a lot of this is going to be about showing that the things that the government is doing is are, are as much from the heart as they are from the head, and that actually towns and communities in Scotland matter as much as town communities in England. And the only way you're going to get that home to people is actually delivering change and showing that you're willing to fight uh, as hard for them as you would for anyone else in the UK. Can I make a short plea? When I was um, uh, working in government, I was actually part of the uh, cross-Whitehall communications campaign around the union. We'd started on a campaign idea around the power of four, which I thought was a lovely kind of emotive uh, response to the, to the benefits of the union. Um, whatever happened to that? <laughs> Can we have what, it back what again, was it, please? Christy? What was the idea? Well, that was that was the germ of the idea, if you like, was to, was to talk about the power of four. It was about encapsulating the nations and the strength of the unions uh, as a collective in an emotive way that people could get to grips with. I subsequently was no longer in government. I never saw it as a marketing campaign. <laughs> Just want to put that back out there as an idea. I really liked it. Whatever happened. Did to it ever it. come across your desk, Luke? Uh, I think for a while we were pushing that, which was the... It know, worked. Uh, <laughs> Boris Johnson was saying the Fab Four, you know, as he was uh, doing quite a few, you know, quite a few of the interviews and things in the early days. But I think so much was disrupted by COVID, um, and then obviously some of the you know comms breakdown that took place with the divergence of different parts of the UK. Uh, it then became a more difficult message to manage, and that's that's basically the behaviour of of uh, politicians. You, know, you you saw Nicola Sturgeon, who would often do a press conference straight out of a meeting with the PM about things, and you know instead of it being an agreed line, was then straight to the cameras and here's a negative and here's why they're all wrong. How annoying uh, was that, Luke? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very annoying. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. you know, it is. Um, but it's just one of... It, you also, after a while, built it in and knew the, the, the expectation. What you really saw in that in, during the COVID crisis was those politicians that were able to put country and people first uh, and those that are then hotly political that would always use every opportunity to uh, to make sure that that political line is scored. Yeah. It's so interesting speaking to you, Luke. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. Pleasure. Thanks very much, everyone. Not at all. Not at all. It was an interesting point about you leaping on the duelling of the A9. Was it yeah, the A9? Yeah, the A9, yeah. Um, I think some of the reticence of uh, Westminster ministers to go out and about in Scotland or indeed Wales or Northern Ireland is you don't have any of that shorthand knowledge, that cultural... Yeah. through knowledge so you can do your lines and you can get briefed but it's that fear of that kind of you know cultural inheritance if you like I was a Westminster correspondent who worked for the Western Mail which was uh, described as the national newspaper for Cardiff um, and I felt this all the time you know everything was 
twice as difficult and took twice as long because I just didn't have any of that cultural shorthand knowledge. And I think that that fear, if you like, of you don't know what you don't know is sometimes what stops people from uh, from going on to, you know, to, to BBC Scotland or Good Morning yeah. Scotland. It's a really interesting thought, actually. And it's it's something that you you appreciate when somebody is across the brief and it's you know you can you can really see it it's it's exceptional when 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 a sort of uk minister goes to do a scottish interview a scottish media interview for example and is just all over it and knows exactly what they're on about um there is really... a there is a fascinating um tension though so so quite a lot of the union relationships are taken up by the cabinet office and and the cdl and there's always a sense if the cdl is seen to be you know, pushing the case, if you like, of the first ministers too hard. They've almost like they've gone native. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> which is uh, which is always one that you know used to make me laugh because you know, in some senses, you know, you've got to act as a shop steward, if you like, for the for the nations. It can't just be well, we've given you your Barnet consequential, we've you know top sliced some Westminster money and given you your share, uh, and you know, be thankful. You know that kind of you know incredibly patronising relationship but like i say if you go too far in the shop steward side you're you'll seem to have gone native <laughs> yeah, that's oscar i just i wanted to just a reflection from you on boris johnson and scotland why did why didn't scottish people like him <laughs> well i mean i'm not sure that's i know that is true that is true yeah, i, think I was going to try and spin that one around speaking. yeah i know i was i was anticipating well that. no i i think i think there's a maybe a perceived uh well brexit number one um, but then I think on top of that, maybe a perceived brashness um, that sometimes comes with Boris that I think I think maybe doesn't always play particularly well. Uh, and I think, and I hinted at it when speaking to Luke, uh, which was a very interesting chat, by the way, that actually sometimes that more kind of managerial style of Rishi for such a delicate relationship and issue like the union is is maybe better suited. I think that's as far as I would go, Callum, in terms of speaking <laughs> ill of my. There's of so my many prime actual minister. answers to that, which <laughs> I could say, all of which will get me in trouble. So I won't. <laughs> and and uh, just. But you, oh, right, Callum. Callum, come on. Let's let's have it back. So you are, and I'm sure the listeners are aware, are Scottish. Yeah. Why do you think I it is? Tries to hide. Well, I don't. I, I think I just think he is a classic example of distance from an issue slash the issues of Scotland. Yeah. Where perhaps there and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there might be a perception that he doesn't care. And I think it's I think fundamentally that is what is at its core. And it's not the only issue on which he may have been perceived as being aloof and somewhere up there and doesn't doesn't really get into the detail of it. Wouldn't know what the A nine was that Luke just mentioned, yeah. which is one of the busiest and biggest and main roads in Scotland. So there's that there's that kind of perception I think, and I think that underscores everything. The fact he's conservative also plays on this because generally Scottish people have quite a, a, and these are generalisations have quite a difficult relationship with the Conservative Party, and yeah. so that's there too actually as a fundamental. Um, but I think it's that feeling of distance. Also, I th his attitude towards everything. And that he was quite jovial, um, you know, could be quite sarcastic, and that's just who he is, and that's his character. Yeah. But but when, you, when if you are a patriot, that doesn't land well if it's if he's joking about your country or your first minister. Yeah. Um, and that just sort of seeming lack of respect. So so maybe those are three kind of fundamental things, and there's specifics in there. But yeah, being a conservative prime minister 
gets you off to a bad start. Uh, a sort of lack of care and, and being aloof. And then his overall demeanour perhaps just made people feel a bit on edge about um, about his, his general approach towards Scotland. Did that register with him? Did he know that? Do you think? Um, I think... I mean, this is the, tra- the tragedy here. I, I, I think the union is was very important to Boris. I think he completely understood the importance of it and the weight of it. And I think that obviously, you know, and, and hearing you talk... I mean, we, we kind of said the same thing there a little bit, Callum, but just hearing it come from you, obviously that was communicated amongst the, as you said, the kind of the, the, the fun that kind of maybe that shouldn't be there, that sometimes littered in comments down in Westminster, that actually back, you know back in Scotland, just kind of pangs a bit and goes, oh, no, you're not quite understanding, like, the seriousness of this. Um, it wasn't communicated well enough, yeah. that care. I think uh, the people of Northern Ireland might uh, raise a eyebrow at your suggestion that Boris was a committed and passionate unionist, given the Brexit deal, and how that played out for them. <laughs> well, yes, indeed, as we've discussed on the podcast... Really interesting thoughts. Of course, you can email your own analysis of all that's going on. You can email hello at whitehallsources.com to get in touch. And make sure you follow, make sure you subscribe to the podcast as well. This is Whitehall Sources, and I'm pleased to say it is time to open the door to the correspondence, <laughs> to the correspondence unit. <laughs> you two are still giving me the exact same look as when I first opened the door. To the Stop doing it. <laughs> it's not going away now. It's here to stay, and I'm pleased about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, right. Uh, shall we turn to some emails then? Let's turn to some messages. David from Lincolnshire, first of all, uh, who a couple of days ago said, Hi, just caught up with last week's podcast. Excellent episode. He says, I messaged you last week on Times Radio Breakfast to say I would not miss the morning round of government spokespeople at all. Uh, this is the format in reference to the podcast. This is the format of programming which is much needed on mainstream media. The balance and content was very informative and very enjoyable, says David from Lincolnshire. So that's an interesting thought uh, on something we've already touched on on this week's episode. Your thoughts welcome. Hello at whitehallsources.com. And we're going to give a special focus to this email from Sam today, who says, Hello, there's me saying to all my mates that the rest is politics is the best political podcast. I wasn't even aware something called that existed. (laughs) Anyway, then this comes along. Five out of five. Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you for the entertainment, the insight, and political education. I can't believe Oscar dropped in conversation that he voted for Jeremy Corbyn. No, I can't believe that either, (laughs) Sam. So, you know... That's a rapid conversion to 2019, says Sam. I thought that would be an icebreaker when I started at number 10, and it, I don't think it went down that well, actually. Icebreaker? I'm shocked. Gosh, that's, that's quite the icebreaker. I'm shocked, yeah. Uh, anyway, Sam goes on to ask, and this is a purely selfish question, he says, how does one become a special advisor? I graduate this year. Um, I have stocked Oscars and Kirsty's previous jobs online, but I'd appreciate a discussion on how you both got there. It sounds very rewarding and very interesting. Uh, keep it up. I genuinely appreciate the podcast. Even if my housemates and family shout, that bloke you spend your life listening to is on the TV again, Oscar. Uh, the Corbin backing, Boris backing, Oscar red drop, everyone. Uh, right, but to Sam's question, how do you become a special advisor? A good question. Kirsty. Okay, so for those of us that are not politically fluid, like Oscar, <laughs> uh, I think the um, 
the most sensible way of doing it, or the quickest way of doing it, is to work uh, within the party that you that you want to become a SPAD for. So uh, in the Conservative Party, you would set yourself up to either work in the press office, if media is kind of your bag, or in the Conservative Research Unit. Uh, and then what tends to happen is, you know, quite a lot of, of the talent, if you like, it becomes a talent pool, basically. So quite a lot of the of the talent, if you like, the, the ministers uh, pluck their spads from tend to be from within the sort of party headquarters. The same will be applicable for the Labour Party. They will have a research unit. They will have a, a press office. The quickest, surest way of doing that, I suspect, is probably to to put yourself forward, try and get a job there, and that will allow you to form the network and the connections you'd need to become a special advisor. Nice. Oscar, apart from, you know, flip-flopping between political parties on a whim. <laughs> Be all things to all people. No, um... <laughs> no, um, I, I just... Uh, well, the thing I found most helpful, that just picking up on Kirsty's point there, is actually networking. I think uh, you can... God, I, I can just see Callum and Kirsty be like, God, you can tell this guy worked for Boris. But you can spend a lot of time, I think... Uh, obsessing over your career and that's one thing in terms of like doing the right thing and getting this job here and then doing that over there and and definitely obviously do that but like meeting there is I think just meeting people meeting as many people as you can being interested being interesting but making friends you know with the right people in the right places um, just really getting out there. I, th- I think people, particularly with COVID, post-COVID, it's kind of how I got the job, to be honest. A lot of people stayed, the job I was in at the time, a lot of people stay away from the office now. And actually, like, if you just get stuck in, you'll just you'll end up in a bar and you'll be talking to someone who used to work, for, you know, in government and they kind of, you know, take a shine to you and then, and then you're away. Great. It's a bit of a shortcut there. That's nice. Fantastic. I like that. There you go, Sam. <laughs> Uh, a couple of comments then. Uh, thank you for your email as well. You can email anytime. Hello at whitehallsources.com. Uh, a couple of comments on our TikTok videos from last week, just to finish. Uh, we posted uh, Jake Richards, who used to be an advisor to Rachel Reeves, um, who of course now is Shadow Chancellor. Um, he basically said she wants to be the first female Chancellor. She feels the Tories have got away with it for too long. This was after the budget, of course. Uh, Eastman on TikTok says Rachel Reeves is really intelligent. She will make an excellent Chancellor. On the other hand, Alex says, well, well, seeing as Labour, the party of diversity, aren't able to elect a female leader, Chancellor might be the best they can get. Uh, which is which is cutting Ooh. and astute. Uh, let's consider Kevin Pringle was on our podcast last week as well from the SNP. We were asking him about that constant refrain from the SNP. It's a bad deal. It's a bad deal. The union is a bad deal. Does that work? Um, is that just boring? Uh, Joe on TikTok says, How very dare a political party have a consistent position. Uh, which is a good point. Andy says, rather than bemoan the message, point out where the message is wrong. Oh, hold on, you can't. 2023, Scotland is free, says Andy on TikTok. Uh, And this person, Ian, says, talking bull, as the trust deal with Australia has been proven uh, by Westminster, not the SNP, to be the worst deal ever, suggests Ian. Uh, thanks for all your thoughts. You can email hello at whitehallsources.com. If you've got questions for Kirsty and Oscar, you've got exclusives... You've got exclusive access to them. You can email anytime. Hello at whitehallsources.com. 
And so that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for being there. Lovely to have Oscar back. Lovely to have Kirsty as ever. And more importantly, lovely to have you. Your thoughts then on the media round. Will you miss the government ministers should they stop appearing? Where are you on Scottish independence? Is it same old, same old? Is it time for a more emotive discussion? Have your say all through the week. We'll read them in the correspondence unit next time. The email address is hello at whitehallsources.com or you can find us on TikTok, on Twitter and on Instagram. Just search for Whitehall Sources. We'll pop up. Make sure you follow and subscribe. If you would be so kind as to leave us a little review for this episode of the podcast, please do so. And if you could tell your friends, your family, share this link with anyone you can think of, because we'd love to welcome more of you to Whitehall Sources. We will be back next Thursday in your podcast feed. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you then. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.